0: If someone asked if you believe in God, you'd know which God they were talking about. It's the God of the Bible, of course, the only one we ever talk about. But if you asked someone in the days of Moses, do you believe in God? They'd have to ask, which one? Exodus chapter 34 is God's formal introduction to Moses, where he gives his name and lets all of Israel know what God they now follow. In verses 5 through 7, God comes down and he proclaims his name to Moses. We read that the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, this isn't like most introductions. God doesn't come down, shake Moses' hand, and say, Hi, Moses, my name is Yahweh. It comes with a lot more. First, let's talk about that actual name, Yahweh. As we mentioned in a previous episode, saying the name is not using our God's name in vain. Our God did give us his name. He's referred to this name, Yahweh, over 6,000 times throughout Scripture and is found in the mouth of many of God's people in the Old Testament. We have permission to address our God by the name that he gave us, Yahweh. But we still can't really actually say for sure that Yahweh is how it was pronounced. Ancient Hebrew didn't use vowels. So if we were to write out his name in our English alphabet, we would simply spell it Y-H-W-H. And you could put any different combination of vowels in there and completely change the pronunciation. When vowels eventually were added to the Hebrew text, the Hebrew scribes, they didn't keep the original pronunciation. They added some different vowels, which eventually gave rise to the English form Jehovah. Now, most of us are actually confident in the form of Yahweh based on a whole bunch of linguistic data that we can't even begin to scratch the surface of here. But we also have to admit that there are other possibilities. It could be Yahweh, or it could be Yahoo, or Yeho even. But either way, our God introduces himself with much more than just his name. He also introduces his character. He introduces himself as merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving, and just. God doesn't just want to be known by a collection of syllables. He wants to be identified by his character. God had told Moses in Exodus chapter 3 that he would show Moses who he was, and that these actions would be God's name. Well, God revealing his name comes right off the heels of the golden calf incident in chapter 32. Israel had shown themselves as disobedient, as rebellious, and quick to forget God. But God reveals his name as one as being gracious, as merciful, and forgiving. And he shows that in choosing to renew the covenant that they had broken in the subsequent verses. But what about this whole bit about visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation? That seems a little unfair to us. Why should children have to suffer for the sins of their father? Well, it's unfair to God as well. If you take a look at Deuteronomy 24, 16, we read that fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. If you want to look at this concept even more in depth, I'd recommend that you read Ezekiel chapter 18. So God does not necessarily want to punish children for their father's sins. So what does God mean here? Well, it's useful to compare this to a similar phrase found in Genesis 15, 16. There God is speaking to Abraham, saying that his descendants will come back to the land of Canaan. He says they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So we see fourth generation, we see iniquity, all sharing the same kind of vocabulary as Exodus 34. Well, the Amorites, they're sinful. But God is telling Abraham that he's going to give them until the fourth generation before he punishes them. They haven't yet deserved that punishment, and the future generations still needed time or at least a chance to repent. It's only because of the subsequent generation's sinfulness, their continuing in iniquity, that God destroyed them. So in Exodus chapter 34, when God says that he will visit the iniquity of the fathers to the third and fourth generation, it's not God punishing people for the sins of their ancestors. It's God saying, I am forgiving, but don't assume that because I am merciful and that your family has so far escaped punishment that I am just simply letting this all go. God will give time for repentance, and he will let generations continue on in the hopes that they will turn back to him. But eventually, around the third, maybe even fourth generation, there is going to be judgment. So even in his judgment, God shows his patience. Because Yahweh is a just God, but mercy triumphs over judgment. After Moses' conversation with God, he returns to camp and something incredible happens. His face starts shining. When God appears to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 in the form of a burning bush, he tells Moses you need to take your shoes off because you're standing on holy ground. The holiness of God radiates out from him. It's almost like it's this infectious ore that spreads out from God. Well, after speaking to God face-to-face, Moses has taken on some of that holiness and glory of God. But when he gets back to camp, the people of Israel and Aaron, they're afraid of him, and rightly so. God's holiness is deadly. Who among Israel can live near it? Again, going back to the burning bush that represents God's holiness, we also know that the bush is not being consumed by the fire. God wants to bring his people to him so that they can be holy as well and without being consumed by his holiness. In tomorrow's reading, Leviticus chapter 1, we see God instructing Israel on how to be holy. So who can survive God's holiness? Nobody. But because our God is merciful and abounding in steadfast love, he's going to make us holy so that we can live with him in eternal life.